welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to the Free Cities podcast, show number 21. So, as it's our 21st birthday, we should probably celebrate with a particularly good episode of the podcast. Fortunately, I have just the one for you, and it's the next episode in our series from Poland. An extremely fascinating conversation with a gentleman by the name of Nikos Sotirakopoulos. Nikos is an author senior lecturer in social sciences at York St. John University and the director of the European Ayn Rand Institute. Now, I have a big problem with this conversation, namely that it is way too short. Nikos is unfortunately a busy man and I had a strict hour with him whilst we were in Warsaw. However, we did manage to cover a fair bit of ground during that hour, from brutalist architecture to collectivism versus individualism, the culture wars, Ayn Rand's philosophy, martial arts, what Jordan Peterson gets wrong, Joe Rogan and the medium of podcasting, political correctness, anti-capitalism, to name but a few of the topics discussed. Nikos is an excellent orator. This kind of conversation not only leaves me well-informed, but also rejuvenated. And I hope you get to have the same experience as I. Don't forget to subscribe and review us on your listening app. And if you're the kind of person who likes consuming your podcasts on YouTube, then I should inform you that we've started to release the back catalogue of this podcast at the Free Cities Foundation's YouTube channel. And in the meantime, just sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Nikos Sotirakopoulos. talking about just in the lift on the way up here which I'm really interested in you said you have a fondness for brutalist architecture okay which I mean I I've just I, I you've written two books which um just the titles of both of them show me that you're not a fan of collectivism no. okay <laughs> right <laughs> so so I'm surprised now here's my take on brutalist architecture because I don't like it I mean, and the reason I don't like it is because if you compare it to a form of architecture that took a lot of dexterity to produce, as in, you know, your average period property, which is full of ornate, etc. What collectivism does is stamp out the idea of creativity. And as a result, the buildings have no creative merit. They have a function, a functional merit. And I find that distasteful when I look at them. You mentioned monuments, the monumental aspect of some of them. Okay, that I could I could lean towards. I'll give you a good example of that. Have you ever heard of a place called Buzilja in Bulgaria? No. You're going to love this one. I went there many years ago. It's it looks like a UFO 
on top of a mountain in the Stara Prania mountain range in Bulgaria, former center of the Socialist Party in Bulgaria. I think I know what you mean. Yes. It Yes, yeah, it yes. literally looks like a UFO. And I've seen some of these also in former Yugoslavia. They had the very bold architecture. Right. Side. Yes. That stuff you could get me on a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting because I I did a I I, I did a uh, a story. I was a journalist for many years in London. I did a story about Buzoja where I went there and photographed it and wrote about it. And I spoke to people who had visited it. It's now derelict, complete and. It completely derelict. I mean, it had um, murals on the walls made out of mosaics and stuff. It's really, really absolutely incredible to look at. Um, and I spoke to people who'd visited it when they were enrolled in the party. And the way they described it was true. It's an impressive building and you go up a winding road to get there. And they said, oh, I was 11 years old and I really felt like something was happening to me and I was going to this. And it literally looks like a UFO with this vast ceiling with a giant hammer and sickle on it and all this kind of stuff. Um, so there is an impressiveness to them. But when you're talking about buildings here like in the street that we're in now i find them very oppressive but i and i and i think they are designed to to make to to inspire down downtroddenness in you how i'm right. explaining it, you know yeah. what i mean so first of all my knowledge in architecture is probably as much knowledge as someone in the uk has about basketball so don't take <laughs> me as anything near an authority what i appreciate in these buildings if we forget the context they were built for, is that they have an ambition, an ambition that I want to do something great, something big, something that is to be remembered. Now, you might want to make something big, either because you want to uplift the human spirit, that look what humans can do, or like imagine a medieval cathedral, because you want the individual to feel small. Now, I know that most of these buildings were done with the second aspiration, that you look at them and you feel small. But hey, I don't share that context. I get aesthetic pleasure for seeing them. Let me give you another example. Take Sostakovich's Leningrad Symphony or any of the movie of the music of Sostakovich. We know that he wrote this music, a lot of it for propaganda reasons. We know that his music had to go through, sometimes literally through Stalin. I don't care when I take aesthetic pleasure from that music irrespective of why he wrote it, the Seventh Symphony is brilliant. So this is how I view this art. Now you could say, you cannot take it away from the context. And I say, who stops me? It's, it's how I, it's the aesthetic pleasure I, I get and what it says to me. Now, obviously there's a limit at some point. So, we, so would you say, for example, uh, you go, let's say, to a Nazi extermination camp, would you say, oh, I get something out of this? I think here, It's completely impossible to drop the context. But when you see a building, and particularly some of these buildings that were not even used for something, they were not like a secret police or, or something, you can get the aesthetic appreciation and insert your own context, what it means to you. I see ambition. I see, I want to be here in 200 years. I want to be remembered. Hmm. I, uh, <clears throat> it's funny, I, I don't even think of the longevity aspect of it myself. I, I think of them as practical functional buildings that would probably be pulled down uh, and, and also um, I suppose my other thought is that they are at the extreme of the human mind because um, when we were designing buildings and, and fashioning them with our own hands there was a certain amount of 
idiosyncratic, you know, idiosyncrasies in our buildings. With the age of the modern of modern technology, we got to get absolutely sociopathic with our right. We can make straight lines. We can do this, and you very much look at those buildings and see these boxes and windows, and and it was very much a, a, a an in an, uh, a, a mental approach rather than what I feel was often in older buildings was more of a sort of like emotional approach to buildings uh, i don't know that's my interpretation I, I think there could be a connection there between individualism and collectivism as well i, I think well Th uh, yeah I, I am approaching this from an individualist perspective so to speak that where i'm saying what is the intellect the aesthetic satisfaction it brings to me but when we get to the political context there's no question that these were the results and the creation of systems that were very collectivistic whose Soul, whose one main purpose was to remind you yes. that without the group, you are nothing. And sometimes it was explicit. So th there was this horrendous prison in communist Cambodia. And at the door, there was a sign with many rules. And this was the prison with the lowest survival rate, perhaps in modern history. Because people were there who were enemies of the regime. They would die after torturous condition. And it said... Uh, your life, something like uh, you, uh, there is no use for us to keep you and there is no loss for us if we dispose you. I, I butchered it, but it, the, the translation is something like that. This is the essence of collectivism, that you are nothing outside of the group. And if you see all collectivist regimes in history, they are consistent in that. And for me, this is what also explains their demise. It was not, a, oh, there was this bad person, no, it was a bad idea to begin with. And a bad idea will have a bad practice. Theory and practice go hand in hand. You cannot have something good in theory that fails in practice. Collectivism is bad in theory, wrong in theory, and in practice it brings uh, horrible results. Okay then. So playing the devil's advocate, do you see collectivism has a place at any scale? Because I've often wondered whether... At the, the, with the very small scales, collectivism can work. Obviously, that's not addressing the aspect of collectivism which says, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to do it by force. Is, is, that, is that necessarily one of the definitions so, of collectivism? Collectivism is something simple. Collectivism means that the, the unit, in the terms of the unit that has value, is not the individual, is the group. So collectivism has zero value. It's like saying, does a bit of poison work? What has a lot of value is cooperation, solidarity. But these are not the same things are, uh, as collectivism. So for example, you are part of uh, a group with some people, you share some values. You came together and you said, we want to promote a different mode of living, a mode of living with more freedom. And we came together, but we came together as individuals. You didn't throw your judgment from the window. And you didn't say, from now on, whatever the group says, I mean, let's say your group in two years turns into, I don't know, communist or uh, white nationalist, whatever. Then you say, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not what I signed for. I still retain my values, my mind. This would be coming together to, and you stay with the group as long as the values are still the ones you signed up for. If though you surrender your judgment and your mind to the group, then this is collectivism. You Take for yourself the role of the sacrificial victim. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to just read out the titles of your two books, 
because I think it, they give you a lot of insight into what we, what we can talk about here. One's called The Rise of Lifestyle Activism, From the New Left to Occupy. Already, I wish, I, I love all that stuff. I, I really want to talk about all of that. <laughs> Secondly, Identity pol Politics and Tribalism, The New Culture Wars. Um, when you say the new culture wars there, is that, I mean, identity politics is often talked of as the new culture war. Is this a new, new culture wars or is that what you're alluding to here? So what I mean by new culture wars is that politics more and more are losing their essence. So politics used to be, you have a group on the right and a group on the left and they have some fundamental difference in how they view the world. I mean, the, the, the way I want to imagine it, uh, not imagine, it's actually happened. Imagine, let's say you're in Italy in the late 40s and you have elections and the two big parties is on the one side, the Communist Party and the other side, the Christian Democrats. Now, this is a real class. You have a guy who has an open line with Moscow who literally takes his orders from Stalin and who tells you, if I win, my vision is for a society with socialized means of production, uh, everything that goes with And on the other side, you had a completely fundamental vision. Now, let's not enter now the discussion which vision is good or bad, but we recognize they're fundamentally different. I look at politics today, I don't see such division. Right and left, they agree on the basics. Yes, mixed economy, welfare state, uh, the state has a role to play in, the, in education. Well, some taxes we have to pay. So on all the basics, they agree. And yet, the toxic sphere, is, is the public sphere, is so toxic. There is so much hostility. And my question was, why? Why is it that there is less and less at stake and there is more and more that we fight about. We fight more and more about less and less. This is what I tried to explain. And my answer to that is that left and right today are not ideologies. They're groups. They're tribes. Imagine them like football teams almost. Your football team might change players from year after year in the same way that left and right, they change their ideas. The right has completely betrayed, for example, free trade. Or the left has betrayed free speech if they ever believed in it. That's another question. And the more they change, the more their base, their support base, becomes more and more and more sold into the group and hostile to the other group. So this was the mystery that I tried to explain with uh, the book. And the culture wars are the issues on which today political hostility is uh, condensed. Free speech, gender issues, transgender issues, the issue of the vaccine recently, so these, they didn't used to be political issues. And yet today, they're at the center of the conflict. Why? Because the big conflict about what they are the conflicting visions in society. It's not there anymore. There are no conflicting visions, unfortunately, I would say. But what I don't understand, if there's conflict in the culture, how is it not being represented in the political sphere? You would have thought the political sphere is running, the way it runs is by appealing to the cultural sphere. Yeah. So, so how, what, where, how is there a dis disconnect? But the disconnect is, for me, politics is first and foremost about what is the relationship between the individual and the state? What is the relationship between the state and the economy? So these, for me, are the fundamental political questions. And these fundamental political questions today are not addressed. Whether you take Trump or you take Biden, they're, in their mind, the relations between the individual 
and the collective, the individual and the state is the same, more or less, more or less. And you see this in all the big issues. So this is why I'm, I'm seeing the political sphere being becoming more and more shallow. Now, if let's say you are the right, you don't really believe in capitalism. You don't really believe in freedom. How are you going to differentiate yourself from the left? Oh, am I am anti-woke? Uh, the transgender bathrooms are the most important thing for me. We need to kick uh, critical race theory out of schools. These become your rallying cries. Not the fundamentally big issues, which is have you got the right to your own life, to your own happiness, to your own property? These questions, no one addresses them. And this is why they have switched their attention to the culture wars. It's very convenient. Right. I, I get it now. So what, according to you then, we're on a timeline, I take it. We've, we've reached this point. Where does it go from here? And um, what is the natural outcome, according to you, of, of this situation? Well, I mean, for, well, for example, I think many people are disillusioned and don't join in with the system, presumably. But, I mean, this this happens in the UK. You look at the the, the biggest turnout we've ever had for a vote in f f recent times was Brexit. Brexit, because it was actually something that <laughs> you got a vote on. Mm -hmm. You got you got to vote on something that <laughs> was different. You could have chosen one or other of these two different decisions. The the, the votes in the actual political sphere normally are uh, this guy does roughly the same as this guy. Yeah. So, so Brexit had the meaning. Or potentially had the meaning because I will claim that not much has changed after Brexit. Unfortunately, I believed in Brexit, and I consider myself uh, duped. I consider myself that I made a completely wrong uh, evaluation because I expected that the UK would be like the Singapore of Europe after Brexit. How wrong I was! But anyway, where we are in the trajectory? I grew up in the mid 2000s, and my biggest regret was we are living in boring times. So I believed in things like what today we would call, let's say, populism in terms of they're going to rock the boat. We're going to have something different. But my, the lesson I got is that things can change and things can change for the worse. So the fact that you have, let's say, something new doesn't mean it's going to be better. So when I see, for example, today's American right, I would never say that I'm missing the American right of the neoconservatives because there's nothing to be missed. But I cannot say that this is better. Or when I see, for example, the, the new left, again, I cannot say I miss the old left. But I cannot say that this is, a, this is fundamentally an improvement. At least, for example, you could say the old left believed in the idea of progress, believed in the idea that people have agency. At least that's what they told us. Or at least the old right, they claimed they were for freedom. They claimed that there's something very special in a country that says we stand, we take these principles that you have a right in your life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So change doesn't necessarily mean change for the better. This was my big message from the period, let's say, between 2014 and today. That yeah, Trump was interesting. Brexit was very interesting. There is some sad Freud seeing your, quote, political opponents or enemies, unquote, uh, losing it and being triggered. But this doesn't mean that what's going to come out is going to be better. Why? Because what is missing is the fundamentals. What is missing is, does Trump really believe in freedom? And my answer is no. So why does that happen then to political parties? Why, why, why does that trajectory even happen? Why does somebody, you would imagine, or I would imagine as myself, if I believed in something and I really wanted to 
get other people to believe me, I might become political. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be the essence of political. So how do you arrive at a point where political parties are not political, oh, are, are, sorry, are not, um, don't, don't really believe in something? Right. Is that, a, well, let, let me pause it. Is that a result of technology by any chance? No. Uh, I mean, I've, and what I mean by that is, you have your means now, the technology, to find out the best way to appeal to your voter base. Sure. So that's that could incentivize a different for, a different form of, of operation. So you could say that social media, the way they are today, quite often they push us towards the lower common denominator, and and all this is true. But here's the thing: the change in politics never comes from politics. Conservatives say something which is correct. Politics is downstream from culture. I would add one more step, and culture is downstream from philosophy. What are the big ideas that we've been hearing for decades? That probably we haven't got free will. That uh, the individual hasn't got agency. That we understand the world based on groups. As a black woman, I believe X. As a white man, I believe X. What does this mean? We don't think as individuals. We think as groups. We've been told constantly that we live in a very risky world, in a world that doesn't make sense. So the world doesn't make sense. I haven't got agency. I'm vulnerable and at risk. What do I have to do? I'm in, I'm in panic. There's chaos. It's like that, the, 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 the scream painting. So I have to cling to the group. I have to get existential security and understand the world based on the group. This is the essence of tribalism. The idea that to understand the world I don't look at reality, I look at other people. What did my tribe say about the vaccines or about the masks? I will do this. Or even worse, what does a tribe I hate say about a particular topic? I will do the opposite. For example, the woke like uh, Zelensky. I'm skeptical of Zelensky. Uh, the woke hate Putin. Maybe there's something on Putin. Now, again, I'm not judging. I have an opinion on which right size is right and which side is wrong. But in any case, you shouldn't reach your decision by what do the people that I hate like, so I will like the opposite. Contrarianism, if you're a contrarian, you're still a second-hander, as Ayn Rand would put it. You're someone who views the world through the eyes of others. Mm -hmm. So do, it, w w was that a political strategy then? Or is that something that is so innate in human beings that in the end, culture veers towards <laughs> that's a that's a that's super important question what do we mean though innate innate could mean that it's in our genes we can escape it or it means that it's an easy option i would say it's the latter tribalism is the result of intellectual laziness of of saying i won't bother to to form an independent view now forming an independent view is super difficult and quite often i find myself being tribal i told you i was excited with brexit because the people at the university that uh, pissed me off, uh, they were in meltdown. Okay, that was fun. But this is not the way, this is not the way to, form, uh, to form your politics. So I wouldn't say it's innate, but everything around us points to that direction. Because when they tell you, you haven't got free will, you haven't got, uh, you're, a, you're basically a basket case in need of the state, the powers to be, the experts need all the time to guide you and save you from your bad self then what you internalize is that the world out there is not a space where I can, which I can navigate. I think um, an evolutionary biologist might say that the collectivist strategy had its uses in 
his, the historical human experience. The, the the human the hunter gatherer human who was, you know, a group of a hundred or fifty people. The collectivist ideas worked then. Do, would you say that was wrong still? I would say that cooperation has worked, not collectivism. Actually, I would take it a step further. Collectivism is has a negative impact on cooperation. Because again, collectivism means I am adding up zeros. You don't think for yourself, you don't think for yourself, you don't think for yourself, and you all come together to serve a common cause. A common cause set by whom? So every collectivism needs a fearer, a despot. Whereas cooperation, again, is I put my, I, my insight, my values, my skills, you put your skills, and now we make a team. We have a common goal, but we're actors. We are, uh, ag- we are agents. We have our free will. We have our thinking. So I would say cooperation is great. Collectivism is bad for various reasons, including that it's not helpful to bring a strong community. So if you want to build a strong community, don't be a collectivist. Be an independent thinker. I get it now. So collectivism is the other side of the coin of gr- the group. So th- I'm, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to find the, the positive here because... I don't believe that something like collectivism would exist if it didn't serve a purpose, if you see what I mean. I mean, m- most things in human culture are there for a reason. And you, you would argue they're part of an, the evolutionary strategy of a species is to find what works and, and inherit it. Or keep improving it. So I don't think that, at least from, let's say, the times that we stand in two feet and we use our mind don't think that collectivism was ever a competitive advantage. I mean, see throughout history battles between freer societies and less free societies. I could, as Greek, I could bring the example of the Greek versus the, Sper- the Persians. Now, Greeks were not an example of I don't know, individualism, but you had people who viewed themselves were free citizens. At some point, you could say even the Spartans experienced themselves were free citizens. I mean, their definition of free was a bit weird, but Compared to the to the Persians, the Persian was way more collectivistic society, and they were they had all the advantages, and they lost. And I would bring this even today: a free society is always better when fighting with an unfree society. We've had so many examples in history. It's a myth that uh, what's the saying uh, under Mussolini the trains were running on time. A, they were not. <laughs> B, again, how many times have we had this? myth that, oh, for example, the Soviets had the mighty Red Army. The mighty Red Army, in war after war after war, made a fool of itself. We've seen it so many times. So it's not true that collectivism and saying, I'm going to be a sacrificial lamp, I'm going to be a cannon fodder because I believe in the group. It's a lie that this gives you a competitive advantage. It's the exact opposite. How come it still exists then? Well, it still exists because, again, it's an easy option. And also... It is supported by a morality that we've bought into through since ancient times, which tells you that it's a virtue to sacrifice for others. It's a virtue to sacrifice for the group. That wanting to live your life for your own happiness is something which is bad. Now, if you buy into this, it's a matter of time until someone comes with a club and tells you, hey, I'm not forcing you to do something. I'm forcing you to do the good. What did Bismarck say about taxation? Bismarck was, let's say, the creator of the welfare state. Of course, the left doesn't want to, wouldn't want to hear that, but the Bismarck, Bismarck is the creator of the welfare state. He called it practical Christianity. 
how can you go against that, right? If you, if you accept that my role in life is to be my brother's keeper, my role in life is to serve others, well, then the system that fits you is collectivism. Freedom can only operate among people who view themselves as, I have a claim to my life. My happiness is my goal in life. That's the only way you can have freedom. If your goal in life is to serve the glory of the motherland, you don't need freedom. You need, I don't know, a Putin, uh, whatever. Or if your goal in life is, I want to, let's say, have as little as possible impact on Mother Earth, you don't need freedom. You need someone to tell you how little you need to have and make sure that you don't uh, surpass a particular threshold so that you don't put too much pressure on Mother Earth. So if we want freedom to flourish, we have to understand that it has a philosophical basis. We throw these bases away, we won't have freedom, which is why today freedom is not popular. How crazy that is, right? It has given us all these miracles. And yet, still people today find socialism, young people, more popular than capitalism. Now, explain this to me, if not by the fact that we've bought into all the ideas, all the collectivist ideas, that actually undermine freedom. I think, <clears throat> well, if I think of myself and when I was younger, the simple fact that I thought socialism was a way to be nice to everyone, it seemed fair. <laughs> it does seem fair. It's like everyone gets the same amount. Um, but I think obviously that is a symptom of age because I think... Um, People do tend to shift their political ideas as they get older and as they take on more responsibility. And as they go deeper, I think, into those ideas, obviously thinking that socialism is fair is a very superficial way of looking at it. Yes. That <laughs> yeah. So so this is... It's you're, We're almost giving them too much credit. It's like, oh, this is a very noble idea, but then, you know, you compromise life. No, it's the opposite. What is good in the idea that... Everyone on earth has a claim on your life. Think about it. What does it mean from each according to ability to each according to need? It means that at, until each and everyone's needs, the 8 billion people are met, you have a burden on your shoulder. Now, you mentioned, though, being nice and being kind. This is, has, nothing to do, has nothing to do with socialism. Being nice means I appreciate you as a person. I don't want you to see you suffer, even if you're a stranger. Or it means, I appreciate that we are a community of free people. I want to defend it from, I don't know, invading uh, authoritarians or whatever. I would even give my life for this community because it gives me my freedom. For this, this, is a, this is a free society. So nothing, there, there's nothing in common between socialism and being nice or being kind, benevolent. I, I would say, actually, again, it's something completely different. In the one case, you say... Part of living my life is appreciating what I get from other people. And I want to help because you're of value to me. Even if I don't know you, right? You're a human being. I don't want to see suffering. The other tells you that you have a duty to serve everyone. And this is the, 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 the burden you have to carry in your life. Not the same thing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, <clears throat> I'm sensing your... I'm sensing Ayn Rand. You're channeling Ayn Rand <laughs> at the moment. Not a surprise since I work at the Ayn right. Rand Institute. Yes. Uh, exactly. But um, that, it's, an interesting, um, it's, it's an interesting part of Ayn Rand's um, ideas that often get misunderstood is the, mm -hmm. no, the notion of selfishness, which you're kind of alluding to there. And, um, can you give a, a very succinct um, 
101 on Ayn Rand. I'm not, I know, I know of Ayn Rand. I know the general basics. I know a few of the famous books. I've never, I've got Atlas Shrugged on my shelf, but I've never oh, dared pick it up. I know, well, someone just told me in the conference, correct me if I'm wrong, Ayn Rand is the second most published author, or like, I wish it was the this is, Bible. This is, this is based on a very particular piece of research it's like 97 percent of climate scientists think that climate change this is kind of misleading but no it's it has sold billions it's very successful it's not the second most selling since the bible but it touches upon something which is true which is many people have read it and have been influenced by it so you want a you want a quick introduction so rand says you tells you something simple there is a reality out there and only one reality and we have the means to understand it by using our mind. This is great news because it means that we can succeed in this world. This is not a valley of tears. Life is not suffering, as Jordan Peterson would put it. <laughs> we can succeed and our happiness is possible. And not only it's possible, it's good that your life is your highest value, your own life. And again, this is where people get it wrong. Oh, if my life is my highest values, it means I can do whatever I want to other people. No. Why is it good? Is it, let me put it this way. Would you suggest to your best friend, go become a mafia hitman? Like if you want their best for them, would you say, go become a thug? Of course not. This is not a good life. You, you deal people as if they're your victims. What's going to happen if you run out of victims? Or even if you're never cut, you look yourself in the mirror and you see a thief or you see you know, a thug. This, this destroys you. So having your happiness as your highest standard, as, as, as your highest value, does not mean you're a bad person. It means, though, that you recognize that your life is yours, that you don't, that you don't owe to society or to people you don't know or to people who have... People, people's needs are not a claim on you. Now, again, I consider myself quite a good friend and quite benevolent, but you have to come and ask me. You cannot put a gun against my head and tell me, hey, you have a duty to help or you have a duty to, to, to sacrifice. I mean, think about this. I spent nine months of my life in the Greek army. And we all considered it, yeah, normal, I go to the army. But what does it mean? It means that someone tells you, I'm going to basically kidnap you for nine months because you owe it to 10 other million Greeks. Why? If someone can answer me this why... I mean, I'd be very interested to be uh, persuaded, but I haven't found any good answer. So this is what Rand tells you. And she also tells you that to have such a life where you're free to use your mind to create, to produce, you need freedom. No one should be able to put a gun against your head and stop you from thinking or putting your thoughts into action. So this is how she comes to capitalism. She doesn't most people say, oh, Rand is primarily an advocate for capitalism. No, she's an advocate for reason, which needs freedom, which means she's also an advocate for capitalism. What was her stance on the state? Okay, so this is where Rand disagrees with, uh, with anarchists. So she believes there should be a government because there should be, in simple terms, there should be objective law. So there should be an understanding that if I hurt you, you cannot do to me you have, a, you have a right to self-defense. You have a right, but in order to live as civilized human beings and not live under, I don't know, mob rule or whatever, you have accepted that 
look, if, if I steal your stuff, there, my punishment should be under, you know, uh, there needs to be a court of law, uh, there needs to be proof. So she, she thought there should be a monopoly of power. And this is why there's so much uh, bad blood between uh, objectivism and between, uh, between many anarchists. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. Something else I picked up on when you were talking just then, you mentioned Jordan Peterson. Um, you mentioned Ayn Rand talking about happiness, mm -hmm. the highest ideal. What does Ayn Rand, how does Ayn Rand classify meaning and how does she classify happiness? Does she say they're the same thing? So meaning is a very interesting question. So quite often we hear these days, you have to find meaning in something bigger than yourself. Ayn Rand would say, what is bigger than yourself? What is bigger than the things that you want to create, the things that you want to, to, to see actual being materialized? We talk about architecture. There's so much meaning in that. I want to build something that I will like, that I will be proud of. Or like what, what you're doing, you find meaning in your work. You have a mission. Like this, is, this is meaning. You don't need to find meaning somewhere outside of this. And of course, this has nothing to do with the fact that you live a boring life or a life... You're not like Nietzsche's last man if your uh, meaning is your purpose in life. She spoke a lot about your central purpose, which it's something productive that you, that you do. This could be, I don't know, you're the best uh, basketball player, the best football player, football player a, a good podcaster, a good advocate for freedom. You have to choose this. But this gives meaning. Why do you need something more than that? Uh, well, I wouldn't even consider that. Um, when I mean, I think of I mentioned Jordan Peterson because he he makes this distinction. Mm -hmm. I've heard him say many times that um, the pursuit of happiness is not as noble, say, as the pursuit of meaning, because happiness isn't the correct emotion in many situations. So by having meaning. You use meaning to navigate all experiences in your life. They get you through the hard times. They get you through the good times. Of course. But then the question is, what do we mean by happiness? Exactly. So yeah. happiness mm. is not something that I'm feeling in the moment. I'm, I'm a f I've been smoking for ages. But at some point, I've, I've tried cutting it down. Do I feel, quote, happiness the minute I get the first inhale? Yes. But this is not happiness. Happiness, Ransel, is a successful state of existence. It's not this uh, the, the, the heat I get in, in one moment. And of course, let's, let's put it this way. My mission, I see, is to spread uh, good ideas, to advocate good ideas. Was I, quote, happy this, mor this, mor this morning when my alarm clock rang at 6 and I had to drive to the airport to fly to Warsaw? Well, at 6 o'clock, I was not really happy. <laughs> But let me tell you something. Now that we're having an interesting discussion, then I will go on stage and talk to people. This is a happy life for me. So I think Peterson, when he talks about happiness, maybe, and again, I'm giving him benefit of the doubt, maybe he means this like momentary whim. And of course, you shouldn't live for your momentary whims. You have to put a lot of effort in what is going to make me happy. Like for years, I had a career that didn't make me happy. I was teaching in a traditional, let's say, academic institution, that didn't make me happy. But I had good days, but happiness, again, is a state, it's almost like a state of existence. It's, it's, it's not how you feel from one second to the other. What do you think enthusiasm is? Enthusiasm? 
It's a Greek. Uh, yeah, and Theos. <laughs> it comes from. It's a. It's a. I think it has religious connotations. Yeah, it's. It's almost like you're elevated. So this. Here's how I'd see it. I'm doing what I should be doing, what I truly believe I should be doing. This is what enthusiasm is about. It's. It's like I'm doing what my purpose is. But you choose your purpose. Your purpose is not your duty to someone else. So this would be another disagreement with, with Peterson. Your purpose is something that you have chosen to enrich your life, even if this means dying in the combat. So let's say you're a Navy SEAL. Your purpose is, I want to be a defender of my country and a defender of uh, freedom. Now, in the best case, you would only go outside of the borders or in the, and, and fight when your freedom is actually... Uh, threatened but actually this gives you meaning but you have chosen it you don't have a duty that uh, you know you came in this life and now there's this duty in your head you have chosen this that this is what will fulfill me this is why and this this might get very weird but i don't like when they say this soldier has made the ultimate sacrifice because this almost doesn't just do what they have done they have died for their higher value and I, I don't want to call this sacrifice because sacrifice is I give something for something less. This is like I've done, I've honored, I've done honor to myself and what I stand for and uh, what my values, uh, what my values are. So this would be how I would view a fallen soldier who has died. Again, it has to be voluntarily. It's not like, oh, I send you to the, to the front and whether you like it or not, go and die. I think you could argue that that was a symptom. That was a premise in days of old, would you say, in the more noble fighting traditions, that you are choosing to be there, and if you die, you die under your own yes. auspices. Or but you choose to be there also because you, you, you stand up for some good values. Isn't that the essence of a lot of martial arts as well? Because you, you, you do you <clears throat> yeah i mean yeah that's goes back to individuals and collective again isn't it the collective would say you're you're sacrificing the individual would say you were pursuing your highest goal you're pursuing a goal of so i'm a, i'm a big fan of uh, martial arts but of the martial arts that actually at least these are the ones that i like that i see that they work in reality so let me put an, a different example i used to do traditional martial arts and they had, you know, they grab your hand and you have to. And I, one day I asked my then uh, master, like, why is there any chance that someone is going to grab your hand like that and do nothing else? So does this move make sense? And his answer was, that's how we do it. Well, then I realized, OK, this is not anymore a noble pursuit because you don't know why you are uh, doing it. So, you know, that's why I enjoy more uh, uh, traditional modern Jiu-Jitsu as opposed to sports jiu-jitsu, that there's, there's a vision there that, you know, I can pro the weak can protect himself from the strong or you can protect your, uh, your values. Of course, I can get someone telling me, no, I like more the traditional lands with the, you know, choreographed moves, whatever. But I agree. Someone might say, you go and you suffer. No, I pursue something that I consider a value, being able to defend myself against evil, against injustice, or whatever. So I think you brought up a, quite a good example with martial arts. Um, Ayn Rand would like mixed martial arts, though, wouldn't she? <laughs> She'd probably be on the front row because that is pure. 
well, working for your highest <laughs> self, isn't it? It's just like, can I beat this guy? Yeah, but again, there has to be a reason why you do that and you have to have thought about why you do that. So I know people with whom I share ideas who consider MMA brutal uh, evil. I don't consider it like that. I consider it as something that requires a lot of skill and I can see it as a virtuous endeavor. Now, if you tell me the reason I watch martial arts is because I want to see when the guy is beaten down and being uh, grounded and pounded. I don't like that. I like the skill. Also, I like the, the, the inspiration I get. Like you think, I tell to myself, you think your job is stressful. Try getting into the octagon. Thousands, no, sometimes even millions of people around the world, they have their eyes on you. And there's someone there who you know can, if, if you don't do your best, they can destroy you. Mm-hmm. So I get inspiration. It's almost like art. What does art do? It gives you a vision of what is possible. This is what I view, what I see in martial arts. And one could say, you could see this in sports in general, the excellence, or at least the aspiration for excellence. This is a bit of a, t- <clears throat> a tangent here, but I'd be interested to hear what your opinion on Joe Rogan is. As, okay. as, as, and I don't just mean him as a person. I mean, well, you talk about art, what he's doing. He is a cultural phenomenon. He is a person, but his show and everything he does, and even the way he, the way he operates, is very unusual. Martial arts, philosophy, potentially. I don't know whether you've classes that um, hunting. You know, what? Summarize, summarize so, the whole the whole thing for me. I think the whole theme directs you at self improvement, which I, I consider is very important. So, for example, he through Joe Rogan, I found out about the book The War of Art which is one of the most impactful books I have read in my life. So Rogan is telling you, you can be better. Rogan is telling you there is, there is more to life than where you are at the moment. I think there are so many people who need this. At the same time, the way Rogan thinks in many issues, I don't agree with it. I think in many issues, he's a bit of a tribalist. Like, you know, he, what his friends, he and his friends, the way he forms his opinions about some topics, I don't agree with him. But overall, I think he's, uh, at least for my life, he has added, particularly some years in the past when I was first discovering this thing, that uh, he, has, uh, he, has added, uh, he has added value with his uh, advocate for uh, advocacy for discipline, for martial arts, because I had left martial arts for many, many, many years. And I, I got inspiration. I got inspiration from him. So Ayn Rand would say that a net benefit is... Okay. Uh, I have no idea. I, again, right. I, and I know many people who dislike Rogan. But hey, he has got a lot of people into being interested in ideas, into talking to interesting uh, people. And particularly when he came out some years ago, there was such a need for that. Mm-hmm. There was such a need for, hey, you know what? There's some different opinions uh, out there. Again, I don't know if I would uh, still have this view today. Particularly, there's some things I disagreed with him throughout the pandemic and things I disagree with him on his evaluation of the vaccines. Not so much on his evaluation, on how he reads this evaluation, but I'm opening a can of uh, words. But as a model of uh, someone who has worked hard, as someone who tells you that your mind and your body should be integrated in one in your pursuit of excellence, I like him. 
What about then, um, like you say, he was he was needed around this time. And I think the fact that he used podcasting to sort of like manifest this, I found interesting as well, because podcasting is something that is needed in this time. And actually is really only was only really available in this time you know the ability to scale long-form conversations a la like the printing press scaled you know the written word the internet scaled the long-form discussion and i i really do feel that that is an important thing that needed to happen now because i've learned more in the last five years than i think i've ever learned and i've learned it while I've been mowing the lawn or sitting in the bath. And I've really had pivotal moments in my life, listening to two people talking in God knows where, at God knows what time in the in the history as well, you know. It, well, this, I've learned more from podcasts than I've learned in my formal education. Let's, let's just put it. Uh, <laughs> and you've got, well, let's just talk about your formal education. It's pretty big, is it? Are you, it, it, are you is, like it, a, is, it is big, but uh, it's, the thing that I was mostly interested in, I've learned from podcasts, not from Rogan specifically, from podcasts in, in general. So discussion is important because it exposes you to new ideas, but you have to be very, very critical with these new ideas. So at the same time, I love this. Let, let's discuss even if we disagree. But at the same time, and I hope this doesn't sound like a, a contradiction, I am intolerant. So I will constantly judge what we are saying, okay? I will keep an open mind that you might persuade me, but this doesn't mean I will give you a carte blanche to say whatever you whatever you want. And I like this, that Rogan quite often does this, that he calls off his, uh, even his friends sometimes when they, when they say completely, completely crazy, completely crazy things. Yes, well, I, I agree, but <clears throat> I think that's actually the point. I, I don't see many, I don't, I think, I came from a journalistic world and in that world, you know, reporting on something was what you did. Uh, in the podcasting world, you don't report on something. You actually go there hoping to either have your mind changed, which journalism normally isn't about, certainly not in this day and age. And it's evolved into something terrible, really, as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but I, yeah, I, well, out of interest, what are your name? Me some podcasts I would never have heard of that you're interested ah, in. That you've never have heard. Well, of. well, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I you, if you're learning stuff from podcasts, I'd love to know what podcasts. You're okay, I've to. learned tons of. St okay, let's start with my favorite. My favorite is, which might sound like weird, because he's in a way my boss. Uh, the Yaron Bruxo. He's the most prominent objectivist out there, and I've been listening to him since 2016. And I've learned tons of stuff, mostly on how to think from Yaron. The Joko Willing Show, but I'm sure you already know that. Yes. Uh, I've followed some very good discussions from the Lex Friedman. So, so again, it's not something, it's quite unlikely that I'm going to give you something that you don't know. I particularly like, though, the Joko Willing Show when he does book reviews. Because he can spend two hours on a topic, on a book, and the book comes alive. Mm. One of my strongest... Actually, not one. The strongest podcast experience of my life was when he did a podcast about the genocide in Ru in uh, in Rwanda. The book, uh, uh, I think, uh, the time of the Massetis. I was my my, my 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 hair was up. 
So it's one thing, like you know that there was a genocide in Rwanda or a mass killing or a mass slaughter, but the way he makes it come alive and then you realize, wait a minute, this was 94, 94. This, was, this was in my lifetime, this was, this was, Srebrenica was 95. So it becomes clear to you, wait a minute, ideas really matter. This is not, this is not stories, this is real people and this could happen again. So it's not like the scary, it could happen again. Ideas have consequences. So it makes you a bit more alert. Like, okay, let's not get paranoid here, but what we're doing here matters. Whether good ideas or bad ideas will prevail really, really matters. It's literally an issue of life and death. First of all, in how you're going to live your life, but also on how society around you is because you might be very rational and society might not allow you to lead a rational life. And we saw glimpses of this, for example, during the lockdowns, where what you wanted to do, what were your values, was completely irrelevant. You couldn't pursue them. I agree with you that ideas matter. I think if you can analyze the whole of culture and society through that same lens and realize that it's all based around ideas and transmitting them, stopping them, you know, coaxing them, work, working with them, and which is once again why I think podcasting is a new, radical, revolutionary way of passing ideas. Because in my case, um, and I've I've done, there's been a couple of people in my life who have really had an effect on me, and one, a couple of them in particular, were actual conversations that I had, and I know this. I know this feeling myself because I, I, I know when I meet someone that knows less than me, you can take them on a journey in a conversation and it can take up to five or six hours to bring them to the point of understanding. Uh, and that's happened to me on a number of occasions with people with very particular concepts that they know where you're going. It's like, it's like the old teacher-student relationship that you had if you were a Buddhist and you lived in the temple. The, stu the student doesn't know what the teacher knows already. And to him, the, the, the teacher is a magician because he can predict everything you're going to say or do. But all it is is he's gone down that path before you. And in podcasting, if you get it right, by the end of a conversation, because you're, it's a constantly changing, meandering river, you can go whichever way you want. I've got no questions to answer you, ask in particular. I'm just seeing where it goes. But it often ends at a quite profound understanding. Mm -hmm. And you can also get there by listening, though. That's what I've discovered. And that's why I think it's such a radical a medium for, for ideas and should, should probably be... I mean, if you look back historically, even before we had any media... It was the spoken word once again, which was where all the ideas happened. Right. And so now I think we sit, we sit at this point where we're scaling the spoken word in a phenomenal way, just at the right time, fortunately. But it's only just at the right time because everything else is getting scaled as well. But, um, but yeah, the spoken word is, is, is a timeless arena of ideas, basically. And something on listening. You mentioned how important it is. Another podcast highlight moment was uh, Lex Friedman had Elon Musk and he asks him a question. I think it's something like, where are we going to actually go to Mars? And Elon Musk spends almost one minute thinking and Lex Friedman doesn't, you know, he just waits here. He doesn't try to fill in the space. No, because that's part of it, right? Oh, I haven't, I need to think to give you a good answer. I don't know everything. So I like this moment. It was almost like you could see 
the mind at work. You probably spent that time thinking your own answer up at the same time as well. Well, that's what I mean. You know, a, a good podcast can draw you in and bring you along for the ride. And yeah, they, I mean, I can stop going on about it now, but <laughs> um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just ask you something about your other book then, Lifestyle Activism. The, the, obviously, they're, con- they're, collect- they're connected with the two books, but what is Lifestyle Activism? So the first, let me first clarify, the first book is an academic book. It's uh, you know, not as exciting as the second one. Also, it's expensive because that's how academics books were. So that was a time of my life where, so I used to be uh, an Orthodox Marxist. When I say Orthodox Marxist, I've read volume one of uh, Das Kapital three times, and I've also read volume two and volume three. Not many leftists can say they've done so. And it was a time in my life that I was struggling with what is happening to the left. Because even when I was an Orthodox Marxist, I didn't like the new left. I didn't like this idea of, uh, well, human beings are a burden on planet Earth that uh, we need the nanny state to protect us from ourselves, or that, uh, you know, values are whatever everyone wants and, uh, you know, anything, anything goes. So I was doing a criticism of the new left from the point of view that it has given up on universality, the idea that no matter if you are in Africa or in Asia, freedom is good. Progress is good. We have one reason, one way to, to view the world, I mean, by using our reason. And the left had given up on all these things, had betrayed whatever it was good in this. And this was my journey, let's say, at that time. And what I described as lifestyle activism was, uh, think about movements like uh, Occupy, if you remember it. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was also Occupy London. And these were movements, or the environmental movement, that mostly didn't have anything to say about how do you want the world to be? How are, what, what are the things that you want to do? It was mostly posturing against, in a way, modernity, against uh, the modern world is uh, corrupt, we have too much stuff. Imagine going to a leftist in the 20s and tell him the problem with capitalism is we have too much stuff. So you are basically a proponent for austerity. This was the time that they were against, supposedly against austerity. And what are you doing? You're saying we are the 99% and we want more austerity, but of a different, uh, <laughs> of a different, uh, of a different kind. So this was a critique to this type of left and also critique to identity politics because identity politics they do something quite poisonous i'm not talking about uh, things like this group is discriminated let's make sure they have equal rights i'm talking about viewing yourself and this group as having its own way of viewing the world its own interests its own uh, its own agenda it basically tells you we don't think as individuals we think as members of groups so it puts you in a box and it's limits you within that uh, box. Oh, you're a member of X group, therefore you're a victim and you can do nothing about it. It's a static condition. Basically, you have no agency. You are stuck in this group and that's where you're going to be forever. So this is, this is what I didn't like in the new, in the new left. And this is the, the book that uh, describes you, this journey. Do you remember something in the UK called Reclaim the Streets. Oh, of course. Do you? Yes. I, when I, was a, I was a journalist for The Independent for seven years. I was a photojournalist there. And I was quite young. That was my, sort of the start of my career. And I covered Reclaim the Streets. And I remember thinking it was just the most incredible thing. Uh, people were, I, at one point, it was, at the, it was the very kind of beginning of the anti-capitalist thing. And 
people stormed the stock exchange and there were traders fighting with <laughs> protesters on the escalator and paper flying everywhere. And I, I'm not being funny. I, I was like, this is unbelievable. But what struck me was the next day they sent me down to the city of London to do, you know, follow up pictures and it had all been cleared up already. And it had, it, there was no lasting memory of it yeah, at all. It's an event. I mean, it's like a carnival. Yes. I think they, at some point they literally called it carnival against capitalism. Yes. So that was my, my, one of my points that you don't stand for anything. Yes. But I find it interesting that in a, at a time where you supposedly you need to put forward your ideas, your main idea is, hey, I stand for some, for nothing. Anything goes. Just live in the moment. Yes. So, so that I mean, you call it nihilism, then? Yes. And is, and is that what? Why is there nihilism in this group of people? Is it a result of contemporary culture, or? Yeah, it's it's what we what we dis, what we discussed. If everyone tells you that again, right. that whatever human beings are doing are uh, bad, that you should have zero impact on Mother Nature. When you see skyscrapers, when you see people creating wealth, people creating stuff. People living life with material things. You consider all that bad. But then ask yourself, what's your ideal? Is your ideal a more impoverished life? A life without mind? A life without production? And how does this make you a good guy if these are your ideals? Champagne socialism. Oh, I think you, you, we give them credit even if we call them champagne socialists. <laughs> I, would, I would say wilderness socialists. <laughs> well, also, you're right. There's a certain... Um, um, What's the word? Uh, Mother Nature is an important concept in this mm -hmm. group. What's mm -hmm. it called when you uh, idolification of Mother Nature? Yeah, or, you know. Yeah, which is a strange thing. I, I've no, I, I, it shows what are your what is your ideal? Your ideal is to return to something that was horrible. Your your idea is not creation. At least you know what I can truly believe that the big percentage of people who were communists in the 20s and the 30s were inspired by something hey uh, we want you know factories everyone to have a good job to create i mean trotsky was trotsky was telling people everyone in soviet union should have a private car this would be the equivalent of saying today everyone should have a private helicopter or, or something at least there was something there to attract the good many good people of course they should have seen through that but there was something there today there's not even that are you seeing a resurgence of um, objectivism, let's say, in, in, I mean, Jordan Peterson is pushing something closely related to objectivism. I would have serious questions about that. <laughs> well, compared to collectivism then, he's, he's you know, or oh, answer my original question then. Yes. Is, is, is there a rise in um well, what would you call would be anti-collectivism, individualism? Would you see... Okay, so a good starting point would be, I believe in reason, I believe in enlightenment, I believe we can make sense of the world. That would be a good start. Another good start is, let's disagree on issues, but let's agree that there is such a thing as truth. Go and see again, if you have the stomach, the first debate between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. Sam Harris tries for two hours to make Jordan Peterson commit that there is such a thing as reality. <laughs> and he cannot. The whole podcast, two hours is this. Jordan Peterson, but what do you mean about reality? This, this, by the way, this is postmodernism, right? This is, I mean, I appreciate so many things in Jordan Peterson. He has influenced me positively in the past. I think his message to people, you know, stand back with your, uh, stand straight with your shoulder back. Oh, all this resonated. But 
his criticism to quote postmodern neo-Marxists, I don't, I'm not sure if his ideas are so radically different from theirs if you scratch under the surface. The trouble with Sam Harris, though, for me, is I find him really boring. Like, that, <laughs> listening to it, when you said that, my initial thought was, oh, yeah, he's alluding to the fact that Sam Harris is so boring, but you mean it's just an excruciating debate. <laughs> I think it's a excruciating debate. So, okay, he's not, he wouldn't be the best orator to, I don't know, lead the... the He's not uh, Malcolm X or uh, Dr. No King. Charisma. He, but I don't find him boring because, uh. let me tell you why. It's so unusual today to find someone who at least struggles to, okay, look, whatever I'm going to tell you, I'm trying to make sure it's backed you know, by facts and all that stuff. Now, he has a big problem. He doesn't believe in free will. And this is a huge issue for me. But if you take this aside, I think at least the effort that whatever I tell you, it has to be it has to be based on something. I appreciate this. Okay. So are you optimistic then about the future? I mean, everything we've talked about here on the the, the identity politics, tribalism, culture, culture wars, are you looking at that thinking, okay, it's moving, it's we're moving in a, a better direction or we will be moving in a better direction. So I'm not going to tell you if I'm optimistic today. I'm going to tell you what was my prediction some years ago, that what we'd call today wokeness and political correctness had gone too far. And indeed they have. The problem is this though. What has been the other side is a new right which doesn't believe in freedom and actually goes out of its way to tell you so. So the new anti-woke appears as the power of... Uh, you know, Order versus chaos, as Jordan Peter says. But this is an order which is a dangerous order. And just see who are the candidates in the United States and how they view your right to live freely, to, to, to have control over your body in terms of uh, how you trade with other people, the substances you put in your body, all these things that are, for me, the litmus test. Do you truly believe in freedom? See how they deal with them. So I think we have... I'm not too much worried anymore about, quote, walk, because people have seen, okay, these guys are crazy. People have seen, not only crazy, they're scary. But what will come in its place, I'm not sure if it's the thing, uh, the thing we need. Um, I've got one last question for sure. you. Uh, it's a question we ask everyone on the podcast. Um, I'm going to guess, I think I know what your answer is. You have a sabbatical. I've mm -hmm. just granted you a sabbatical. Everything's taken care of financially for you. Whoa. For one year, what are you going to do? This is going to sound so much party line and this is going to sound so much predictable. What I would do is I would try to become better in what I currently do. So I would go to, is there, I don't know, a boot camp for becoming a better communicator? I would first of all try to understand the ideas that I advocate better and then try to make sure that I advocate them uh, better. Now, this sounds... I don't know, cliche, whatever. That's exactly what I would do. And maybe if you can pay me for like a Mai Tai retreat in Thailand or a good Zuzitsu retreat. Okay, here's the deal. Ideas in the morning, martial arts in the afternoon, communication skills in the evening, and on then at night we watch football and basketball. That would be the good life. Okay, I'll see you there. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> but I mean, arguably, Ayn Rand would ask you or would suggest you were aiming for that in your real life. Is that right? First, I have no idea what Ayn Rand would say, and because uh, I cannot speak on her behalf. I think she would only ask me, would this make you happy? And would is this a, is this a good productive goal? So if I told you, 
my goal is to go and snort cocaine for a year. She would probably, not probably, she would definitely tell me, hey, not good for you. First of all, because in a year, you're probably not going to be here if you snort cocaine for the whole year. So she would say, is this what you want? And is this, is this like, do you know why you want it? And then probably she would give me the thumbs up. Well, Nikos, it's been excellent talking to you. Thanks. Thank Thanks you very much. for your time. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you.